Listener discretion is advised. This episode features graphic discussions of sexual assault, murder, overdose, and abortions. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. In the late 19th century, there was relatively little oversight of the pharmaceutical industry. Corner drugstores sold deadly compounds over the counter, and even everyday medications contained ingredients like cocaine and morphine. With the prevalence of such habit-forming elements, it's no surprise that addiction was rife and overdoses were common. Many medical professionals responded to these dangers by taking extra care when it came to their patients. But others threw caution to the wind and used the pharmacological Wild West to fulfill their darkest desires. One such was 21-year-old medical student Carlisle Harris. Much like the medications sold in 19th century apothecaries, Carlisle appeared safe. Helpful, even, when his wife mysteriously died. But behind the veneer of an upstanding young man was a noxious poisoner. This is Medical Murders, a Spotify original from Parcast. For decades, thousands of medical students have taken the Hippocratic Oath. It boils down to do no harm. But a closer look reveals a phrase much more interesting. I must not play at God. However, some doctors break that oath, choosing to play God with their patients, deciding who lives and who dies. Each week on Medical Murders, we'll investigate those who decided to kill, We'll explore the specifics of how they operate, not just on their patients, but within their own minds, examining the psychology and neurology behind heartless medical killers. I'm Alastair Murden, and I'm joined by Dr. David Kipper, MD. Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Kipper, and I'm happy to help Alastair with some medical insight into our case of Carlisle Harris, a Victorian-era doctor who dabbled in drugs pushed the limits of his medical training, and led a secret life that will certainly surprise you. You can find episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This is our first and only episode on Carlisle Harris, a New York medical student who administered a lethal dose of morphine to his wife in January 1891. Today, We'll explore Carlyle's long string of crimes before he committed murder and how medical school gave him the very tools he needed to kill. All this and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Cool fact. 
A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can-flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though? They really mean flavor. Like, in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi Strawberry slid right into my taste buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there, and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. On the night of January 31st, 1891, the Comstock Select Boarding School for Young Ladies buzzed with excitement. The prestigious finishing school's location in New York City allowed its students access to the peak of culture and entertainment. That night, it was the symphony. But the students' night of excitement didn't end with the final stanza. Three of the attendees chattered loudly as they climbed the stairs to their school dormitory, raving about the show. Miss Reed, Comstock's associate principal, shushed the boisterous girls. In hushed tones, she informed them that their roommate, 19-year-old Helen Potts, was recovering from a headache. The trio took note. It was too bad Helen missed the symphony. Quietly, the girls continued upstairs, turned out their gas lamps, and got into bed. Minutes later, Helen cried out in pain. The three roommates rushed to her aid. They suggested she'd feel better if she slept it off. But Helen felt that if she closed her eyes, they would never open again. Clearly, this was more than a headache. Helen told her roommates her boyfriend had given her pills to soothe her headache and she'd taken them. Through heavy breaths, she asked, Carl would not give me anything that would hurt me, would he? The girls weren't sure how to respond. They didn't really know this Carl. As they pondered, the headmistress, Miss Day, rushed into the room to investigate Helen's earlier screams. She took one look at the teen's pale skin and fetched a nearby physician, Dr. Fowler. By the time he arrived, Helen appeared comatose and her pupils were completely constricted. A physician can surmise a great deal by examining someone's pupils. These little round openings in the irises dilate and constrict to adjust for light in the environment but sometimes their size can be affected by drugs, injury, or disease. Constricted pupils, like Helen's, can be a reaction to opiates like morphine. This is because opiates stimulate the parasympathetic sections of our autonomic nervous system, which includes the pupillary sphincter muscle. Pinpoint pupils may also indicate physical damage to the nerves near the center of the brain, or even brain cancers and tumors. Physicians may examine pupils for a number of reasons, and this usually involves dilating them in order to look for eye problems like macular degeneration and diabetic retinopathy. They'll also conduct pupillary reflex tests to make sure the eye is functioning properly, and a major component of this is observing how the pupils react to light exposure. 
Considering Helen's symptoms, Dr. Fowler diagnosed her condition as likely a morphine overdose. Dr. Fowler's diagnosis of morphine overdose wasn't only based on her symptoms. The opiate pain reliever had been responsible for many local deaths recently, either through accidental overdose or intentional poisoning. Dr. Fowler couldn't tell which had happened to Helen, but either way, he had to act quickly. First, he attempted a coffee enema. He also administered whiskey. In 1891, a significant portion of the medical community relied on traditional cures that frankly didn't have much scientific footing. For a doctor back in those times, a coffee enema could have been a go-to treatment for any sort of detox purpose. The colon was often regarded as the accumulation point for all toxins, so some healthcare providers thought regular enemas were crucial. Specifically, many thought the caffeine and other ingredients in coffee could penetrate the colon walls and could eliminate toxins from the blood. As for whiskey enemas, I'd imagine there'd be similar justifications. While some people may swear by these kinds of interventions, it's important to remember that there's no scientific or medical evidence to support any positive health effects. It's no wonder Dr. Fowler soon moved on to more serious forms of treatment. Other remedies, including atropine and digitalis. He even brought in another physician, and they attempted to electrically shock Helen back to life. The shock therapy was delivered by a hand-carried medical battery, which in essence acted like a defibrillator for the brain. When the heart stops or doctors need to prevent or fix a dangerous arrhythmia, they'll use a defibrillator to shock the heart. One can think of it as sort of an electrical reboot. Similarly, the current from this medical battery could have corrected some abnormal electrical activity in Helen's brain under the right circumstances. However, this treatment back then would have been primitive and unsafe for a multitude of reasons. Today, if someone witnesses an opiate overdose, it's important that they call 911 immediately. If the person isn't breathing, try to perform continuous chest compressions, as we no longer recommend mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation. And of course, immediately give the person Narcan if available, position them on their side once they're breathing, and stay with them until help arrives. Even though opiate overdoses are still a tragic epidemic, Patients these days have a much higher chance of survival than poor Helen. As dawn broke through the windows on February 1st, 1891, Helen Potts took her last painful breath. All of Dr. Fowler's careful treatments couldn't save her. Dr. Fowler wiped his brow and closed Helen's eyes. The air was heavy with sadness, but the doctor didn't have time for mourning. He suspected Helen's overdose might have been due to an error made at the pharmacy, though he couldn't rule out the possibility that whatever happened that night wasn't an accident at all. He searched the room for clues. Sure enough, he turned up a prescription box. The label read, 25 grains of quinine sulfate and one grain of morphine sulfate to be taken once nightly. A 
grain is roughly 65 milligrams, and usually that one grain of morphine would be divided into multiple capsules. According to Dr. Fowler, taking one or even a few of these capsules at the same time wouldn't have caused such an extreme overdose. Oddly, though, the prescription wasn't written by a doctor. It was signed CWH Student. The school's headmistress realized the initials must stand for Carlisle, who'd seen Helen the previous afternoon. And around this time, Carlisle showed up at the school. Dr. Fowler quickly learned that Carlisle W. Harris was a scion of a respected New York family. Carlisle's grandfather was Dr. Benjamin McCready, one of the country's preeminent physicians. Carlisle followed in his footsteps, enrolling in the College of Physicians and Surgeons, now known as Columbia University's medical school. Dr. McCready was so delighted with his grandson's choice, he paid for Carlisle's tuition and even offered him a room at his house. In the late 1880s, Carlisle moved in and began his studies. It seemed Carlisle inherited his grandfather's talent for medicine. He thrived in his classes and was often praised by professors. He was even expected to become house surgeon at the charity hospital on Roosevelt Island upon graduation. In the winter of 1891, that was just a few months away. Despite being Helen's boyfriend, Carlisle was, by all accounts, apathetic at the scene of her death. In an even tone, he explained to Dr. Fowler that he'd given Helen medicine to bring down her headaches. He made sure to add that he'd only given her four of the six capsules prescribed, with each capsule only containing one-sixth grain of morphine. After all, he didn't want to risk Helen developing an addiction to the pills. Dr. Fowler took the medical student at his word. He turned his investigation to the pharmacist Carlisle said he got the pills from, McIntyre and Sons. Perhaps they had made a grave mistake, including more than the prescribed amount of morphine in Helen's pills. Dr. Fowler told Carlisle to get the original prescription slip and the other pills and meet him at the coroner's office. But when Carlisle eventually met with the coroner that evening, he showed up with just a single capsule. Apparently, he'd misplaced the other one. The results were conclusive. Carlisle Harris was telling the truth. The capsule contained the intended one-sixth grain of morphine. Helen's death was deemed an accidental tragedy. An amount of morphine that shouldn't have been enough to overdose on still caused a deadly overdose. While the drug's dangers weren't as well understood in the Victorian era, less than 60 milligrams of morphine is tolerable for the vast majority of adults. On the other hand, an overdose could theoretically happen, and there have actually been rare cases where deaths have resulted from as little as 60 milligrams. Depending on factors like Helen's weight, her general health, and whether or not she'd been taking other substances or medications concurrently, I suppose it's possible that this relatively small amount of morphine could have taken her life. 
We typically see overdose deaths near or over the 200 milligram mark, but it's tough to speak conclusively about Helen's passing in this regard. While it could have been seen as fishy by some, the cause of death wasn't completely implausible here, Alistair. With their answer in hand, Dr. Fowler and the coroner determined there would be no need for an autopsy. Helen was buried six days later, on February 7, 1891. While her family grieved, Carlisle Harris returned to school. Cleared of suspicion, he was again on his way to becoming a surgeon. But one of his professors wasn't convinced that Carlisle was fit to graduate. He decided to investigate Carlisle's relationship with Helen. And while Carlisle appeared to be a polished gentleman and aspiring doctor, what the professor turned up was anything but. Dr. Fowler hadn't discovered the true nature of Carlisle Harris. Neither had poor Helen. Not even close. Coming up, Carlisle Harris's underground crime spree. Hi, listeners. I'm Tom Morton, host of Parcast's landmark show, Real Pirates, where we set sail alongside history's most notorious villains. Dive into their world during the golden age of piracy in an immersive audio experience. Listen as experts reveal the reality of life under the black flag. There is no evidence that I have ever seen of any pirate burying their treasure. Catch our previous episodes on Major Steve Bonnet, Charles Vane, and Blackbeard. Blackbeard himself as a pirate was a larger-than-life figure. He would put candles into his hair to frighten his victims. And still to come are the stories of Anne Bonny, Captain Kidd, and Henry Morgan. Join us for new episodes every Monday as we follow the rise and fall of the most legendary outlaws ever to sail the seven seas. Real Pirates is a Spotify original from Parcast. Follow and listen to Real Pirates for free on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Now. Back to the story. When 19-year-old Helen Potts died in 1891, her doctor dubbed her morphine overdose a freak accident. But as time went on, suspicion swirled around Helen's boyfriend, 21-year-old Carlisle Harris. From the outside, he looked like a perfect gentleman with a promising medical career and a sterling reputation. 
But as his professor soon found out, he wasn't so sterling. Carlyle had left school at 13, pursuing freedom from his mother's strict rules and a series of odd jobs which culminated in the management of an underground club and an underground name to go with it. At night, Carlyle was known as Charles Harkness, the owner of the Neptune Club. At the clandestine rum and poker joint in New Jersey, the laws of the land were non-existent, Rumors of unrestrained gambling and debauchery at the Neptune Club swirled around town. And though he appeared to clean up his teenage act when he moved in with his grandfather and began medical school, Carlyle's secret persona bled into his academic life. On campus, he boasted about his sexual conquests, describing how he'd mix alcohol with ginger ale and give it to unsuspecting young ladies so he could then sexually assault them. Some accounts suggest that on multiple other occasions, he secretly married young women under fake names just to get them into bed. However, it seems Carlyle's crimes and boasts about them didn't go far beyond the halls of the College of Physicians and Surgeons. To the rest of New York high society, Carlyle Harris appeared a respectable medical student from a good family. So when he set his sights on 17-year-old Helen Potts in the summer of 1889, she had no reason to believe he'd treat her with anything but kindness. The pair first connected while Carlisle was visiting Asbury Park, New Jersey, for his school holidays in Helen's home state. Like Carlisle, Helen was from a well-to-do family. With Carlisle's future title as a surgeon, they seemed well-matched. In just a matter of weeks, they became inseparable. Not everyone was happy about their relationship, though. Mrs. Potts deemed the whole thing to be inappropriate and urged Carlyle to stay away from her daughter for the time being. Helen was just too young. However, the two continued to meet in secret. Soon enough, their relationship became physical. When Carlyle returned to school after the summer break, they kept in touch. Unbeknownst to Helen, Carlyle also returned to his former promiscuity. Considering this, it's somewhat surprising that the following February, Carlyle and Helen were wed in a covert ceremony in New York City. Perhaps less surprising is the fact that Carlyle immediately burnt the marriage certificate. From the available information, it seems Helen had pushed for their union. Carlyle eventually relented, but convinced Helen to keep things under wraps for the time being. Shortly after their marriage in 1890, Carlyle reportedly got Helen pregnant twice. Neither was prepared for parenthood, so Carlyle used his incomplete surgical training to perform an abortion. In the 1880s, surgery was always a big risk, and an operation performed by a doctor who wasn't fully trained was even more dangerous. Furthermore, surgical abortions were inherently dicey back then because they involved sharp and unsophisticated tools, resulted in significant blood loss, and left a lot of collateral damage in their surrounding tissues. 
This was a time when abortions involved the use of long wire-like instruments to puncture the amniotic sac, the protective barrier that enclosed the developing fetus. Not only would this often cause long-lasting pain and scarring, but it could also lead to permanent damage to the uterus, preventing future childbearing. Despite Carlyle having some medical training and a relative familiarity with human anatomy, he surely would have physically harmed Helen in some fashion. He was clearly putting his reputation over her feelings and safety. Unsafe as it was, Helen recovered with no apparent complications. However, the secret of their marriage would soon grow difficult to keep. In July 1890, Helen approached Carlyle with some unwelcome news. She was pregnant again. This was her third pregnancy since they'd began seeing each other. Carlyle immediately suggested another clandestine abortion on his secret wife. But this time, Helen refused. She'd only go through with the procedure if Carlyle agreed to go public with their marriage. She was done hiding. Carlyle was backed into a corner. On the one hand, he wanted to maintain his bachelor lifestyle. On the other hand, a baby would tie him to Helen in an irrevocable way, even more so than a marriage. In the end, he decided to formally acknowledge their union. Or at least, that's what he told Helen. Soothed by his promise, she allowed him to perform another abortion. However, this time was different. As he neared the end of the procedure, Helen bled uncontrollably. The medical student was at a loss. Carlyle panicked, trying everything he could to staunch the wound. Eventually, the blood stopped flowing, and Helen seemed to be doing all right. With that, Carlyle assumed the surgery was a success. He delivered Helen to her mother's house and returned home, relieved that he'd managed to avert a potential scandal. However, back at her house, Helen couldn't get out of bed for weeks. She constantly felt ill. Worried about her daughter's health, Mrs. Potts sent Helen to see her brother-in-law, Dr. Charles Treverton, in Scranton, Pennsylvania. After examining her, he quickly determined the cause of her pain. Helen was pregnant. She faced a burning realization. Carlyle's attempt at an abortion had only injured her, and now poor Helen had no choice but to confess all the details of her secret marriage to her uncle. Dr. Treverton was appalled he wasn't sure what was the worst part, the secret marriage, the multiple abortions in such a short time, or the botched operation. But there was no time to cast blame just yet. It's unclear if the fetus survived for any amount of time following the botched abortion. Either way, in early August, Dr. Treverton delivered a stillborn child. While Helen rested, Dr. Treverton turned his attention to the next painful delivery, telling his sister-in-law about his niece's secret life. Mrs. Potts was taken aback. Last she'd heard, Helen had ended her relationship with Carlyle a year ago. She quickly shifted from shock 
to damage control. She confronted Carlyle and demanded he marry her daughter in a public ceremony. She needed to ensure that Helen's reputation would stay intact in case the pregnancies ever came to light. By this point, Carlyle had no leg to stand on. He agreed. They would have a proper ministerial marriage. To prove his loyalty, he even suggested that Helen move to New York to be closer to him as he finished school. It's likely that Mrs. Potts liked the idea because she soon enrolled her daughter at the Comstock Select Boarding School for young ladies. But Carlisle Harris had no intention of surrendering his freedom. Separating Helen from her family wasn't an act of love. It was an abuse tactic. This is sadly typical. Separation from family gives abusers more control over their victim. And Carlisle's plan required his full control over Helen. On January 20th, 1891, he entered the McIntyre and Sons Pharmacy on 56th Street. Carlisle had been here multiple times to fill various prescriptions for school. He knew his way around the shop and was friendly with the pharmacists. That day, he asked for six capsules containing one grain of morphine and 25 grains of quinine divided equally between them. Since Carlisle Harris was a medical student, it seems the pharmacy had no qualms about allowing him to fill a prescription. Today, medical students don't have autonomous prescribing privileges, and any prescription they recommend without full licensure has to be approved by a supervising resident or attending physician. And it's not like any doctor can dole out whatever medication they like, Alistair. Some state pharmacy boards may actually prohibit doctors from prescribing outside their specializations. For example, dermatologists may not be able to prescribe heart medications, and chemotherapy drugs can only be administered by cancer specialists. Prescribing addictive narcotic drugs, or those drugs we use to treat opiate addiction, like buprenorphine, requires a separate DEA certification. In relation to our story, it's fair to say that the Victorian era was a pretty reckless time for medicine, and, as a result, medical students back then had much easier access to a cornucopia of drugs. So the pharmacist carefully weighed out the morphine and quinine and filled six capsules. The pharmacist placed them in a box marked CWH Student and handed the package to Carlisle. Playing the part of the concerned husband, Carlisle delivered the medication to Helen at Comstock. She'd recently complained of migraines, and Carlisle assured her that this would help ease the pain. He gave her four of the six capsules and instructed her to take one before going to bed. One capsule was approximately 11 milligrams of morphine, which, as we previously mentioned, isn't usually a deadly amount. Still, 12 days later, Helen Potts was pronounced dead. As much as he tried to hide it, Carlisle's sordid past wasn't difficult to unearth, at least not for a suspicious medical school professor and a dogged journalist. On March 21, 1891, a few weeks after Helen's funeral, a newspaper, New York Evening World, 
printed a shocking article, including the professor's leaked information about Carlyle. The paper reported on affidavits from Helen's mother, Mrs. Potts, and her uncle, Dr. Treverton, describing Helen and Carlyle's secret marriage and the abortions he performed after impregnating her. With each new revelation, the public cried out for more salacious details. Soon, whispers mounted. Perhaps Carlyle had killed Helen. To combat the ever-encroaching surge of gossip, Carlyle announced that he would clear things up. He visited Delancey Nicole, New York County's district attorney, to plead his case. But Nicole wasn't convinced by Carlyle's story. After Carlyle left, the DA informed his assistant that they were reopening Helen's case immediately. Nicole's next move was to order a belated autopsy to see if Helen had, in fact, been poisoned. Her body was exhumed on March 25th. According to an examination of her internal organs, the toxicologist estimated that Helen had likely ingested somewhere between three and five grains of morphine. It's no wonder the overdose killed Helen. Now, this is starting to make a little more sense. As mentioned before, morphine doses near and exceeding 200 milligrams are quite often fatal. Also, like we talked about, a lethal dose of morphine is dependent on factors like someone's size, their baseline health, and other substances they may be using. It's additionally important to note that a deadly overdose can happen at any time, despite a patient's tolerance for the drug. When comparing the 195 milligrams she took to the initially estimated 11 milligrams, Helen's reaction to the medication would have obviously been dramatically more palpable with the larger amount. She would have been extremely drowsy, been way less coordinated, and would have been experiencing very labored breathing. In all likelihood, she would have barely been able to speak and would have been flirting with unconsciousness. Strange though, Alistair, the math doesn't seem to line up. Even if Helen had taken her entire bottle of pills all at once, she'd only have consumed one grain of the stuff. The morphine must have come from somewhere else. With the discovery that Helen had taken an excessive amount of the drug, Nicole had no doubt that she'd been poisoned. The evidence was telling but it wouldn't necessarily be enough to convict Carlisle Harris. Nicole needed to prove that he was the one who'd given her the fatal dose. Coming up, the DA closes in on Carlisle Harris. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Now, back to the story. By April 1891, New York County District Attorney Delancey Nicole was deep into his investigation of the death of Helen Potts. He'd zeroed in on Helen's secret husband, Carlisle Harris, but needed more information before he could make an arrest. Around this time, the DA heard a nefarious story. A few months ago, Carlisle attended a lecture on poison at his medical school, During the class, a container of morphine was passed around the room for students to examine. While it wasn't confirmed that Harris stole any morphine from the container, it did give him the opportunity to procure sizable amounts of the drug, more than a pharmacist would ever prescribe. In any case, that was enough of a coincidence for the DA's office to issue a warrant for Carlisle's arrest. The authorities had Carlisle detained and placed him in the Tombs, a detention complex in Lower Manhattan. While Carlisle sat behind bars, the case against him was building, and not just in the halls of justice. Both Carlisle and Helen came from well-known families, so the press made the most of this high-profile scandal. By the time Carlisle took the stand in January 1892, newspapers were flying off the shelves. The packed courtroom listened in horror as the prosecution outlined Carlisle's devious plan to kill Helen. He posited that Carlisle had broken open one of the capsules, emptied it, and refilled it with five grains of morphine. He called forward a litany of witnesses, including the pharmacist who'd filled Carlyle's prescription at McIntyre & Sons. The pharmacist testified that he'd provided Carlyle with the medication and showed the jury how quickly one could open and refill a capsule. Approximately 18 seconds. Potentially even more incriminating, though, was a comment that Carlyle made to a classmate before Helen's death. Out of the blue, Carlisle remarked how killing someone with poison was, quote, easy, because the murderer would never be discovered. These admissions certainly made Carlisle Harris look guilty, but they didn't mean that he'd killed Helen. What's more, the prosecution still needed to prove that Helen had actually been poisoned. Back at the Comstock School, Dr. Fowler had remarked that Helen's pupils were symmetrically contracted when she died. To put it simply, they looked like pinpricks. Helen's eyes told the story of how she died. However, the defense argued that this contraction, called meiosis, wasn't necessarily a sign of morphine poisoning because not all morphine deaths featured two constricted pupils. And Carlisle's defense attorney had recruited the perfect man to present the case study to the courtroom. Renowned therapeutics pioneer, Dr. Horatio Wood, was called to the stand. But any happiness Carlisle may have shown was short-lived. 
During cross-examination, the prosecution savaged Dr. Wood's testimony. They'd come across the same case that Dr. Wood was planning to reference during their own research. The prosecutor informed Dr. Wood that the man in question didn't have symmetrically contracted pupils because he only had one eye. Dr. Wood rushed out of the chamber in a huff. With his unceremonious exit, one of the defense's main arguments evaporated. Soon, Carlyle watched the jury file out to decide his fate. Things weren't looking good. The jury deliberated for less than two hours before reaching a verdict. Carlyle Harris was found guilty of murdering Helen Potts. On February 8th, 1892, he was sentenced to death by electric chair. Although the case was officially closed, the public was still hungry for details. While Carlyle sat on death row, the press continued to dredge up his past. It was a classic true crime scenario. While most readers hated Carlyle, they were also desperate to learn everything about him. Soon enough, tales of other secret marriages turned up in print. One of the more bawdy stories alleged that Carlyle impregnated a 15-year-old servant in 1888. As these details came out, Carlyle Harris didn't hide. He milked his fame, publishing poetry and essays from his jail cell. He fed the fire and made himself more empathetic. Then, a bombshell hit the news. A man named Carl Peterson claimed that Helen Potts was secretly addicted to morphine. Morphine comes from opium poppies, which contain the chemical ingredients at the root of all opiates, including heroin. It's such an addictive drug because, like other opiates, it stimulates opioid receptors in the brain and triggers the production of soothing and euphoric neurochemicals. In addition to morphine creating intense euphoria, it also produces analgesia and sedation, which can all be very desirable effects. Chronic morphine use can lead to extreme physical and psychological discomfort if abruptly withdrawn. This severe discomfort, triggered by a precipitous drop in dopamine levels, activates the sympathetic nervous system, making the body very uncomfortable, and drives it to secure more opiate in order to restore the high levels of dopamine. We obviously can't rule out that Helen may have struggled with addiction. However, looking at everything we know about Carlisle Harris, it seems more likely that he killed her. As they considered that Helen may have suffered from addiction, the public began to question Carlyle's guilt. Eventually, there were calls for a retrial. Leading this sea change was Carlyle's mother, Mrs. Harris. The groundswell seemed unstoppable. Even when it became clear that Carl Peterson was a close associate of Carlyle's from the Neptune Club, the free Carlyle Harris movement only intensified. Carlyle and his mother seized on the frenzy. They hired a new legal team and tried to appeal the previous ruling. However, the court quickly dismissed their motion. 
but Carlyle's lawyer still had a plan, albeit an extra-legal one. If Carlyle couldn't win in court, he would have to win over the people. Painting Helen as a morphine addict was a good start, but they needed to take it even further. The lawyer weaponized the tabloid cycle and started feeding more details about Helen's supposed drug use to the media. Morphine addiction wasn't a new phenomenon in the 1890s, but a young woman of class addicted to the drug? That sold papers. One day, Helen was an innocent victim. The next, she was a slatternly dope fiend. The public cries for a retrial only grew louder. Eventually, the courts caved. They would hold a hearing for a new trial. However, after reading through multiple new affidavits from both the defense and the prosecution, the judge denied the motion. But the fight wasn't over yet. Carlyle's lawyer petitioned the governor of New York, Roswell P. Flower. The legal team implored the public to sign petitions for Carlyle's pardon, gaining thousands of signatures. Carlyle's mother even sent a letter to the New York Times begging her fellow New Yorkers to support her poor, beleaguered boy. And she found support in an unusual place. One stranger claimed that at a seance she'd attended, Helen had sent a message from the other side insisting that Carlyle was innocent. With this apparent proclamation from Helen, the public went back to bat for Carlyle. During this period, the religious movement known as spiritualism was gaining followers and communing with the dead was a popular ritual within the community. So much so that this groundswell influenced the governor of New York. At this point, Governor Flower couldn't ignore his constituents any longer and ordered a special commission to take another look at the case. Carlyle and his mother were thrilled. He had one more chance to prove his innocence. The commissioner re-examined the records from the original trial and called in additional witnesses to provide new testimony about Helen's death. One of these individuals was Helen's roommate from Comstock. The young woman told the commissioner about the night that Helen passed away. She recounted her chilling screams and cries for help. She also repeated Helen's last words, questioning if Carl had given her something dangerous. The commissioner honed in on this detail. If those were indeed Helen's final thoughts, she must have believed Carlyle was capable of hurting her. After reviewing all of the information, the commissioner recommended that the governor deny the request for clemency. This decision was final. On May 8, 1893, more than two years after killing Helen Potts, Carlisle Harris was led into the execution chamber at Sing Sing. A crowd gathered on the hill overlooking the prison. They watched with bated breath, keeping an eye out for the raised black flag that indicated Carlisle was dead. Inside the so-called death house, Carlisle was strapped into the electric chair. 
even on the brink of death, he held firm, only remarking that he was wrongly accused and would die an innocent man. Innocent or not, he died by execution at 23 years old. For the rest of her life, Carlyle's mother maintained that her son had been unfairly convicted. Meanwhile, Helen's family faded from public view, finally free to mourn her in peace. Even though Carlisle Harris was perhaps the noisiest example of the Victorian poisoners, the Gilded Age was rife with that particular type of medical murderer. Our past subjects like Thomas Neal Cream, Edward William Pritchard, and William Palmer all come to mind. Fortunately, despite all of the lasting horror they brought to the planet, these Victorian villains ironically helped advance the field of medicine. While every one of their stories unveiled the untapped evils of the human mind, they also illuminated glaring issues in healthcare systems that needed to be addressed. When looking at what happened with Carlisle Harris and Helen Potts, we clearly see the beginnings of the ongoing and much needed cultural conversation about the dangers of prescription narcotics. The case also added fuel to the ongoing prevailing notion that reckless doctors need to be held accountable. The Harris case was one of many that paved the way for drug regulation as well as physician oversight. And while drug regulation would come, in a time with little to no oversight over medicinal chemicals, the poisoner represented a boogeyman that could strike when a person least suspected. Carlisle Harris used these unpredictable circumstances to his advantage, doing whatever it took to rid himself of responsibility. Although his death couldn't bring back Helen, at least it sent a message that his crimes would not be tolerated. Thanks for listening to Medical Murders. And thanks again to Dr. Kipper for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Alistair. For more information on Carlisle Harris, among the many sources we used, we found the book Six Capsules, The Gilded Age Murder of Helen Potts by George R. Deacle Sr. extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Medical Murders is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Brendan Hawkins, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Medical Murders was written by Drew Morland, with writing assistance by Natalie Pertsovsky and Maggie Admire, fact-checking by Bennett Logan, and research by Chelsea Wood. Medical Murders stars Dr. David Kipper and Alastair Murden. <laughs>